Welcome, fellow traveller, to the TED Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome to another Zoomposium in honor of the launch of the latest Yoho Journal. The Yoho Journals are a scheme that was devised by Alicia Willis and some others, largely through the Host Network, which is a collection of pirates and rabble-rousers who like to meet and talk about the world and theology and everything in between. And out of that meeting came these host, uh, this, this journal which they called the Yoho Journals, which have a piratanical theme to them. And past Yoho Journals have included people like David Benjamin Blower, um, Eve Poole has written one on capitalism. I wrote one on black magic and power. And today's one is by Dr. Linda Woodhead, which is called Rotten Institutions, which I will quickly say can be yours. If you go to the uh, unfold.media, you can follow the links Put in tent 10 into the code box and you will get a 10% discount of Linda Woodhead's Rotten Institutions. Now, it's the normal thing to do to introduce speakers by their titles and by talking about all the institutions that they are a part of, which I was perfectly happy to do. And I thought, wait a second, this whole thing is about rotten institutions which overtake our, our, uh, our identity and our imaginations and they become inhuman. So. Dr. Linda Woodhead and Dr. Eve Poole are our guests today. They are doctors, so they have institutionalized accreditation. They are members of all sorts of very famous and important institutions, some of which are better than others and some of which are more healthy than others. And I am going to let them talk about those institutions during the course of this evening. I'm sure they will come up. Uh, uh, Linda Woodhead and Eve Poole are both also people who could be very easily found online if you want to find their credentials. But I don't want to identify them just by their institutions. And I was trying to think, what is the opposite of institutionalized identity? And I was like, well, it would be relational identity, wouldn't it? So let me tell you about my relationship to Linda Woodhead. When I first met Linda, it was at one of these host gatherings. It was about five or six years ago. And I was intimidated because Linda is an intelligent, a fiercely intelligent person. And I was intimidated. I thought, oh boy, here is a smart person. Here's the smartest person in the room. I better watch myself. The second time I met Linda, I realized she's not fierce at all. She's got a great twinkle in her eye. She's a fiercely funny person. She has remained extremely intelligent. She is still the smartest person in the room, but she does it with great humor, great friendliness, great patience to fools like me. So this is what I want to say about Linda Woodhead. Our next guest, who's going to be offering the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, response to Linda's talk is Eve Poole. Now Eve also is someone whose intelligence has uh, overawed me at many times. Eve Poole is 
one of the best speakers you will ever hear. She is also very funny. We've got two funny ladies who are going to be speaking to us tonight. Eve is a, a, a wonderful communicator. I've had the privilege to collaborate with her on some writing projects. I just love her prose and I love her writing. And I find that Eve's, uh, 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 she tells it like it is. I love, I love Eve's sense of honesty, her sense of justice which is combined all in a package, which is somebody who you just, when Eva's in a room, you just want to be in the room with her. You just want to be at the table that she's at because you want to just be around whatever fun stuff is happening around Eve Pool. So this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to throw out this, that this is my relationship to these two people. And it's more than just the institutions that they are a part of. And uh, we are going to hear now from Linda about her journal, Rotten Institutions, for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then Eve is going to give her response. And then I'm just going to get out of the way and I'm going to let these two have a conversation about this topic. And then well, when the time comes, I will throw open the floor to our guests who have joined us live on the Zoomposium and we will continue the discussion from there. The one thing I should probably say before I throw open to Linda is that she is in a train station in Carlisle. So you might hear some background noise She's found a, a little uh, hidey hole, which is a hotel in the train station. And so she's got her, her laptop and she's got her headphones on, but you might hear some announcements and some train times and things. But if that's what the case, then we will just forgive that because I don't think I've ever had somebody join me from a, 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 for, a, for a tent talks while also on train en route. This is amazing. So Linda Whithead, thank you for joining us. Please, can you tell us about Rotten Institutions? I will, Stephen. Yes, I am in Carlisle. I shouldn't be. I should be in Glasgow, but the train was late. So I'm, I have some iron brew for my Scottish identity and I have a glass of sherry for my English, my English identity so that my full identity can be honoured here. Um, and it's really lovely to be joining you. I'm sorry about this background sound, but I hope it's not too bad. Um, Stephen has sort of unclothed me already in his introduction by, you know, making me naked, dropping all my institutional finery. Um, luckily, saying very nice things about me. But of course, he's completely right that um, I definitely hide behind institutional identities and I have sought out institutional identity my whole life. First of all, the church, the Church of England in my case, and universities, you know, big, prestigious, august institutions. And, and I've become very angry with those institutions at various points in my life and disillusioned with them and then some kind of cycled back maybe to a more moderate position, I hope, some days, some days not so moderate. Um, and so this Yoho journal, um, which I was kindly invited to write by the chief pirate, is a way of scratching that itch. It's a way of talking, writing about what bothers, what bothers you, writing about what bothers you is sometimes a good idea, not always. And I wanted, I was also provoked by having to give a paper at a Christian ethics conference. And also by writing, I've got, a t I've just been teaching ethics in my new job at King's College. So I have to mention institutions, Stephen. Um, and um, I thought when I was doing that and I haven't taught ethics, for about 20 years, I thought, I looked at my old notes and I thought, why did we pick these topics? You know, abortion, euthanasia, just war, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really worrying about those things just at the moment. 
Um, so what am I worrying about and what might students aged 18 or 19 be worrying about? And I think institutions are worrying me. I don't know why the students, well, they do a bit, but not yet. They haven't really embarked on that journey, but they worry me. So I thought I'll write this, I'll write about institutions and what I've learned about them. And, and in particular, why they often behave so badly. Because they often behave much worse than we do. And in our institutional personas, we behave much worse than we would as, as friends and family members and people in the pub or the Carlisle Station Hotel. So um, that's the origin of it. And the more I thought about this question, the more I realized there were a lot, like any complex problem, there are lots and lots of reasons why we behave badly in institutions and why the effect is that institutions behave badly. I start off, for those of you who like definitions, by defining institution. And I define it as an organization that has legitimacy, but it can lose that legitimacy. So these are sort of august institutions. I liken them to stately galleons or <clears throat> parents. Are we looking for parents and security when we join institutions as well as honor? Um, what, what goes wrong? There's a number of things and we can discuss, so I'm not gonna go through all the things I think about, but there are things like worries about money and you know, losing the institution money if you lose it for reputation or um, dignity. Um, worries, you know, lots of reasons to just shuffle off difficult problems to the person higher up the food chain in the institution and, and be quite infantile in that way. Um, worries about, well, people higher up in the institution just not seeing what's really going on, willfully, often willfully blind to really bad behaviour in the institution and other things. So lots of interlinked reasons in the nature of institutions why they often, people find it really hard to behave as well, or as honestly in particular, as they would in normal life. And then I ask in this pamphlet, why, how can they be better? What can we do about it? Because I'm not entirely hopeless about it. I do think institutions are in a crisis now, and I do think young people are rightly very disillusioned with them, um, but I still kind of value them. So I want them to be better. And I go through some things that I think can help. I think the whole turn to stating their values can be window dressing, but actually it can help and it does hold them accountable to something. I think they can redraw things like their policies with insurers and their relationship with lawyers. I think they use it as an excuse often. I think that um, being much more Having independent, independent regulation and boards of trustees and other things or independent safeguarding institute um, body overseers really helps. Um, and they should be looking at HR and personnel problems, as Eve really points out as well in her response, and not just money. Um, and charitable objects in a narrow sense. And um, I I'll end there, Stephen, but just to say one thing, there are some lovely responses. What's lovely about this sort of format is you get really thoughtful responses, not like academics where we just try and find a problem and criticism and rip it to shreds, but these are really helpful ones. And um, there are lots of lovely points, but one, I really loved a point that Liz Clutter, Clutterbuck makes. And she says, because I'd said in the book, actually, you can go back to the traditions that the institutions have, and often you can find good resources for change in, in the history. And she says, I'd rather look at exemplars I'd rather find really charismatic people, admirable people in the history of the institution and now and, and, and work from what's good in them and build it up like a little platform of goodness. Because institutions, my final point, 
are never one thing. They're not really galleons or parents. They're just human cultures and people. And some are good and some bits are good and some bits are bad. And let's focus on the good bits. Thank you, Linda. I've got a lot of questions that I know I'm going to bring up. But before I respond, Eve Poole. I want to start with Terry Pratchett. I don't know good. how many Terry Pratchett fans there are out there, but um, he's a very wise person. And uh, in Thief of Time, he talks about um, some people in an institution. And he says, um, you know, they were not bad men. They'd worked there for many years. And he talks about, you know, how loyal they were. And he says the problem is over time they had thought it was the organization that needed organizing rather than the enterprise and i like that because linda talks um in one of her kind of sidebar pages about the difference between uh, commercial enterprises and institutions and i do think it is one of the problems of institutions that they do start organizing the organization rather than organizing the enterprise and often the way that you correct institutions is you get them to refocus on the enterprise. And I saw this very viscerally um, in my work at Ashridge, another institution that I worked for. And I was teaching a load of punters, some were from the Foreign Office and some were from Tesco, and I, I saw them pretty much two weeks in a row. And the thing I was doing with them was a simulation. And in the simulation, they have to come into the room and discover that their world has fallen apart and the chief exec of their putative organization has vanished and the police are at the door and the press are at the door and everything's gone horribly wrong and it's one of these kind of leadership exercises to try and get you some muscle memory for how do you cope with that stuff in real life and what's fascinating about it is that when you run that for particular organizations you get a very quick snapshot of their core values and the essence of how they approach things so uh talking about tesco first um, it's probably quite telling, really. Um, you know, we had this whole thing happen and there was all these messages coming in saying you must talk to the press, you must, you know, talk to the ministers, you must talk to all these people. They cancelled all that stuff because they were very busy uh, looking at the numbers and creating spreadsheets. And they wanted to turn the whole thing into good, better, best uh, in terms of what the situation was with the organisation in order to analyse it properly uh, in terms of profitability before they decided whether or not they wanted to bother with all these stupid people, the press and all that sort of stuff. A week later, I had the Foreign Office in and um, the Foreign Office didn't cancel the press because, you know, they're the Foreign Office, they know about this sort of thing. They delegated that. So you had people doing press lines because they're very good at that. So you had a couple of policy wonks in the corner doing press lines and everyone else spent the whole first two hours fighting about the organisation chart. And they spent hours on this and it was it was a thing of beauty this particular the foreign office always did this by the way i taught this to them many many times this particular group the week out of tesco uh, even invented a triumvirate structure um because they thought it was very important there wasn't just one person in charge and, and as you know that that's exactly the way to fail to run any organization to have far too many people in charge of it um and of course it's very telling because the foreign office is is much more institutional than tesco would ever be and it is a game that institutions play is they have so many leaders that there is no chance they're ever going to achieve anything whatsoever. Um, and it's very difficult to tell what the enterprise is uh, because they're also terribly busy organizing the organization. So the games that I think I've noticed institutions playing of late a lot, uh, and like Linda, I've worked in academia, I've worked in the church, I've worked in schools, is in the church, they get obsessed with theology. So they spend a lot of time thinking, well, you know, it's theological justification for this. So, you know, we can't do managerism or theology. So you can't do anything, you know, write a book, 
change a lamppost a lamppost <laughs> well you could change a lamppost you certainly couldn't buy a lamppost or change a light bulb um but you can't do anything unless you've sort of done a proper theology about it first um which is a terribly good wheeze uh, and if that doesn't work you can spend a lot of time fighting about governance um and so that's the other game that a lot of institutions are playing is they're having lots of governance reviews uh which is a classic organizing of the organization uh, and trying to spread blame and all the things that linda talks about in her wonderful essay um, so I'm really interested in having a conversation with you, Linda, about what do we do about that? Because I, I came up with one ruse, which is about trying to foreground personnel issues, um, as we've described them, as something which is of importance, because I think institutions tend often to be charities and often to have a kind of trustee vibe, even if they don't have actual trustees. So the Murders and operandi there is all about fiduciary responsibility and handing the thing on to the next generation, keeping it pure and holy. And that often means your privilege reputation over something small happening in, in the short term, which is, you know, one bad apple. And we can't possibly let that ruin this whole massive 300, 500, 2000 year institution. Um, and I've talked a little bit about how if we get the Charity Commission and the other regulatory bodies better at noticing that the governance models we do have are predicated on a, a very widget-based kind of manufacturing model where people were not so figural in terms of the, the value add. And these days we're all in service industries of some kind, uh, particularly the institutions, very few of them make widgets. It's mainly about people and knowledge work of various kinds. So if we can privilege the treatment of people, the upholding of values, and take that really seriously as a, a really important thing about the ethos of whatever the institution is. That might help us at least develop more tools to address some of the issues you talk about, particularly about concealment and about bullying and about all that kind of stuff. But my big question for you really is, you talk quite a lot about truth telling and the kind of duplicity um, and the kind of just slightly skiting off around the corner and never quite being able to be nailed down. Um, what's your lovely word? You'll tell us what the lovely word is, but you've got a lovely word in there about what, what they do to try and prevaricate. And you talk a bit about whistleblowing, but I think the problem in institutions, it is just too costly to tell the truth. And you talk a little bit about what happens to truth tellers and that they never win. Even if the truth is heard, they definitely go down. And there really aren't any examples of people not going down who have been truth tellers. So what would be your ideas about how we could encourage mechanisms protections, roots of truth-telling, disciplines and cultures of truth-telling that would help address this very fundamental problem in institutions? Well, you've really, as always, you've made me think about something that I haven't really said enough about or thought enough about. And, um, and that's, the, it's about how much harder it gets to tell the truth and be honest and deal with these things the longer you leave it. And then it becomes too bad, too bad to deal with, it's too big. So that phrase that institutions always use, particularly in relation to a bully, it, it, there's just one rotten apple, is a, is a bonkers thing to say, isn't it? Because I don't know what your fruit bowl's like, but if you've got one rotten apple, they're all going to go rotten really, really quickly. So it's not just ever one rotten apple. Um, and if you leave the rotten apple, you do get around the rotten apple, a rotten culture and some other really rotten people supporting one another. And then the whole, the whole thing to deal with the thing becomes so impractical. And the longer it's left, 
the, the, the more the rot's gone, the harder it's going to be. It's like having dry rot throughout your entire house. You're going to have to start from scratch. You just can't afford it. So um, I think your question um, perhaps provokes me to say it's extremely hard to get to that. And you're going to have, there will be a crisis and then there will be an inquiry and then there will be a report and there'll be a chance to reform. But let's take a step back and, and try and see how you could stop the rot happening much earlier. And I think you're completely right that institutions have to have to listen better to people complaining because they're always the canary in the coal mine and there are lots more people suffering that and they have to be honest and they have to deal with it and they have to deal with it quickly and so you know when your people come for their exercise what should they really be doing in my view when there's a problem that's been revealed they, the first thing they have to do is to say what went wrong and be ruthlessly honest with one another about what went wrong and then how do we get ahead of the problem get ahead of it so when the press come calling you can say we are taking xyz steps and they've got to be genuine steps to to address it and that's got to be done every time someone comes to you and tells you that something bad's going on in your institution and you have to just make sure that the structures are there and the culture and the protections to allow you to do that or it's going to get really intractable um does that Linda, does does that ever happen? Um, so you you gave you gave the example of the of uh, Archbishop Carey as was who 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 received word about some sexual um, abuse that was happening, and he he put the letter in a drawer, and then he got another one, and he got another one. He ended up getting seven letters from seven different people telling him about the same person. And they all went into a drawer. Now, what is it about an otherwise good person who does that? Like, is it the institution that has just made it impossible for somebody to tell the truth? Or is it the, I mean, is it possible for an institution? I think it's possible. I think, but it's, you know, it's interesting that we're kind of scratching our heads to think of examples. But let me tell yeah. you an, an example. Um, um, I met a very inspiring HR director for a computer accessory company in Silicon Valley. So a big, a big, serious company you'd have heard of. I won't say the name. Um, and I said to her, just what you said, Stephen, now, what do you do when someone comes and reports bullying behavior? Mm -hmm. And she said, I listen to the person. Um, I believe them. I mean, in my first instinct is to believe what they're telling me, because why would they be telling me that otherwise? Of course, it might be false, but I'm, I'm going to try and believe them. Mm -hmm. Then I will call in the person who has demeaned them. And I will ask what happened and I will get their view. And if I form the judgment that that person demeaned the employee, I will say to them, we don't make our way in life by making other people feel small. We learned that in primary school. If you didn't learn that, or junior school, if you didn't learn that, I have a tailored training program that I'm gonna send you on. And then myself and the person who's been demeaned and some others will make a judgment about whether you have learned that. And, she, and, 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 if, this sounds, and if this sounds unacceptable to you, I suggest this isn't the company in which you're, you feel comfortable and you should maybe be looking elsewhere. Well, I know America's got different employment laws, but, she said, if you just do that, if it's a zero tolerance, so the first insult, the first, you know, always 
Mm. Starts with small things. If you do that and everyone knows you're going to do that, mm. it doesn't happen. And I have to say that my husband, who works in, in IT and in commercial companies, is absolutely horrified at what goes on in, in institutions because it just doesn't, it just isn't tolerated. If someone sends a rude email, they clear their desk, they're out by the end of the day. So they have a different policy from the very small things onwards. So I have an example which might be insightful for how it might be possible. Um, uh, and it's in the public domain enough that I can tell you about it. Um, you may know that another institution I was involved with was Gordonston, which is a school up in the north of Scotland, and I was chairman. And the thing that was lucky for me was that I had myself been at a state school. I was younger than the rest of the governors. I was the first female chair they've had. So I really had no skin in the game at all. And so I think that's the first difference between me and George Carey, who's sitting in a massive palace, one of two, with many hundreds of staff, and there's a lot to give up, there's a lot at stake. Whereas I was new at Gordonston, I didn't have um, any axe to grind. I was there to do a job of work because I was really curious about um, a school that took character so seriously. And it so happened that my arrival coincided with some stories breaking in The Observer about some historic sex abuse that there had been um, propagated against children in the junior school that had been an independent prep school but that had fed Gordonston. Uh, and of course, it makes a better story if it's a Gordonston school. So there had been a lot of um, coverage and I was quite new and I kind of got the impression they had gone fairly quickly to the lawyers and to the kind of crisis management people to get lines. And I got alongside them and said, well, I think we have to listen very hard to what's happening here and try and figure out how we can learn from the past into the future. And I spent quite a lot of time talking to survivor groups, talking to you know, all the parties, whether it's um, Children First in Scotland or the NSPCC in England or the police or you know, all these kinds of groups like Mandate Now to try and understand about patterns of abuse, about abusers, how they behave, how institutions harbour them, how they um, help them, how they conceal them, uh, and also what, what the survivor experience is and what they need. But I was able to do that because I was new, I was female, which I think possibly helped. Um, I wasn't from that world. And Gordonston already had a tarnished reputation because the one thing everyone knows about Gordonston is Prince Charles hated it, called it in kilts. So actually you've already got a brand that can, can do with a bit of knocking. Um, and actually it was the best possible strategy. It wasn't a strategy, it was just what I felt was the right thing to do, but it was a very good strategy because we got ahead of the game. And in Scotland, they did announce a child abuse inquiry, which had the boarding schools firmly in scope, other, other, unlike England. So when we were on the block for it, we'd already spent a couple of years trying to address our past sins um, and trying to understand it. So unlike some of the other schools who'd, who'd, who'd kept to the kind of nothing to see here line and, you know, no comment and, uh, you know, just surreptitiously moving the odd portraits so no one would know. <laughs> um, they, they were very humiliated in public at the inquiry when they had to sort of confess that actually there had been a lot of stuff going on. Um, but I think that is quite interesting because it does suggest that to be able to address some of these really deep-seated problems, you have to 
be a newcomer, be an outsider, be someone who doesn't have a huge vested interest, be in the sort of institution where you could risk, in fact, it might be helpful to risk reputation. And that's very, very different from, say, being in the Church of England, particularly as a bishop or an archbishop, where you've got a lot to lose. And actually, where are they going to go? I mean, I can just push off after Gordonston, get jobs somewhere else. But if you are a shamed bishop or archbishop, where do you go? And I think there's a really interesting cost uh, barrier issue uh, about how would we incentivize people to address these things. You've just reminded me of another example, Eve, very much like that fantastic example you've just given us, um, a friend who is an American diplomat. So he would go, you know, he'd have fixed terms and then go to a different country in a different embassy and he'd manage the staffs in them. And he would spend the first, first few months listening to people. And he was a gay man, very sensitive to this, and working out where the bullies were who were making everyone's life miserable. And then he'd get rid of them. And then he said, and then I was beloved for the rest of my term in that place. And everything went really swimmingly well. <laughs> so it can actually have payoffs for people who can do that. <laughs> is there a window of time? I mean, do you have to act when you're still the new person? Is that, is that, that one of the tricks? That was his view. Yeah, you do have to act before you become, mm. before you go native. I, I think That's the right. thing is institutions right. have wiles and they, it is very hard to criticise your institution when you've got too far into it, I think. And I think you also stop being able to listen and see and hear, which is why there's something really interesting about all of the moves in governance that have been to try and refresh boards, bring in fresh voices, you know, all of that stuff, because that had been one of the problems. And in places like the church where, you know, you're bishop for life or whatever, you don't have that natural refreshing going on that you are now starting to have in other places. But it's how you... The problem about classic boards is they they have they're not sighted on what's going on. They wouldn't know who the bullies were. They wouldn't really understand that that was a problem. They wouldn't understand that there was a rotten culture that stopped people naming things. So it's how you would without you know encouraging a load of trustees galloping in and getting all weird on the institution. How how you'd encourage a bit of a sense of, of that as a, as as legitimate risk management as well as really good behaviour. Linda, do you think that we? Uh, pro we, we put too much value on on seniority and longevity not really because I'm getting old now Stephen and I want to keep my job for a bit longer <laughs> See, I'm suddenly, you're, I'm you're suddenly very sympathetic very very sympathetic to older people um I don't I, mean maybe age but I mean like longevity in the institution or seniority in the institution I wonder that's maybe more what I mean that's a very good question um you get so institutionalized um, Andre put, had a lovely response in, in the Yoho booklet to my piece where he talks about working as a community mental health nurse in institutions before the care in the community thing and seeing people who are institutionalized, you know, who's, who just couldn't cope anymore outside of it. So yeah. does that, so you're asking, does, does, it, does it lead to that? It can do. I don't think there's any one answer to that because I'm thinking, I'm rapidly spooling through. Well, I've got a counterexample while you think about that because I've just started working. I think, I think for, it's good and bad. So give me an example. Okay. Well, I've just started working for the Royal Society in Edinburgh and it's a very unusual institution because it was founded by Adam Smith and his cronies um, in the 1700s. So it's a classic old institution, um, had been 100% male for a very long time. Um, and the unusual thing about it is it ought to have seniority, institutional memory, all those things. But they have this sort of bonkers structure where the entire council is elected for a three or four year term and then they all 
rotate off and are replaced. So you have no institutional memory at the top because the fellows tend to sort of swan around like Linda sitting in, you know, hotel waiting rooms um, and writing papers. Um, so they don't particularly engage with the institution. They just collect the letters and swank about. Um, so occasionally they hope to used to be on the council for a period and then they push off again. So you've got no governance institutional memory. And at this particular point in time, because there's been quite a lot of churn amongst chief executives of late, over the last four years, they've lost 75% of their staff. So actually no one knows anything about this institution. And it's a very odd experience because I'm used to working for institutions where there is far too much institutional memory and that's why you can't move. Mm -hmm. And it's equally an opposite, oppositely dreadful to have absolutely no institutional memory because then you don't have the good things of an institution either, uh, but you don't have all the disciplines you'd get in a Deloitte where they, they absolutely turn over 75% staff every four years as well. That's exactly why I was struggling because I think Yes and no. You know, I think it depends. It's absolutely essential to have that person who's been there forever, who does love that institution, for whom it's their bread and butter and they care about it and they're a good person and they know everything. And those people are essential to you when you come in new and really undervalued often. Um, but it can equally, as you say, lead to people who just milk in that institution for their own good and, and, and they're going to fight and get out anyone who, who threatens them. Now, Linda, you just said a magic word, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because it was a phrase you used. You talked about somebody who loves their institution. And your line in this is, we may love them, but they cannot love us back. What's going on? I'm thinking of someone in the institution I just joined. Um, and I just, we just had lunch together and she said, um, I said, why have you stayed and why do you like it so much? And she said, I really love helping people. And I can just tell from everything she does that that's completely true. So maybe that's not loving the institution. Right. She finds it somewhere where she knows the ropes and can make things better for people. And she gets a lot of satisfaction from doing that. But and she's certainly, that not, love... she's certainly not uncritical yeah. about it. But, but like, we, there are people who love their, they love their university or their country or their governments they <laughs> do and you can always tell that because they say our yes okay. they always say our we we do this and our this and whatever so they use the they use the we um so they've merged yes, their identity with merged their identity with with the corporate and i think that's where you start to have to be very self-critical of yourself and aware that you're doing that you see i think that is part of the gig because if you think about just the economics of it there was a sort of joke that it was either the k or the k's so if you want to be dead rich you just cut the chase work in the city sell your soul and don't worry about it if you want to be a bleeding heart liberal you go and work for crap pay but you get a gong out of it so there is a sort of balance being struck which is that you'll get better paid working for a non-institution but if you work for an institution the idea is you get you know it's vocational and you get emotional job satisfaction and there's a sense of loyalty and purpose um, which you know commercial organizations will also sell you but it's not really believed um, and in fact they pay you to, to not ask those sorts of questions so I think there's a slightly dodgy psychological contract going on with institutions which is they trade on the fact that you will fall in love with them and then they use that to shut you up um, because you must be loyal to the institution and you know if there's some dodgy bloke feeling you up under the table then you must lie back and think of Britain, um, because that's far more important. 
Um, so I think, I think there is a conversation that needs to be had about that psychological contract because I think that's very broken too. What you've used the phrase, I think both of you have used the phrase of like somebody becoming institutionalized. What happens to a person when they become institutionalized? I think your identity merges with that of not the institution, because there's no such thing, an idealized version of the institution. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's when it's really dangerous. And I mentioned um, reading that lovely book, The Best Catholics in the World, about it's about the decline of Catholic Ireland. Uh, and he interviews one of the bishops who was most responsible for not moving on a serial paedophile. And he just the interview so beautifully um, and you just get a sense that this guy he's a nice guy the bishop he's really sorry about what happened but he still can't see that it was wrong for him to be defending the institution he just can't see that he cannot there's no him other than the bishop there's no he's lost you know he's been in seminary since the age of six there is no Stephen other yeah. than that other than the bishop and therefore you can never you can't be critical as, as, as Eve says you, you I also talk about Bradley's essay on my station and its duties and his insistence that your station is never a moral, it's not the same standing. Your station duties, your institutional duties don't have the same standing as your moral duties. Yeah. And they must come second. You have to be able to make that distinction. Charles Handley has this lovely visual about institutions and sort of old fashioned organizations compared to sort of more modern uh commercial enterprises and he, he talks about walking down the corridor and looking at the doors and in a place like the church of england you have a plaque on the door that says third church estates commissioner and then you have a little slider where you put your name in and then yeah. you take out again when you're not that thing anymore <laughs> and actually you see that in all these institutions that it's definitely the post that is the point it's the org chart that's the point and the people sort of come and go in a kind of subsidiary to that main aim and that main goal and I, I love that idea of trying to deal with the person not the institution because I think that's very hard to do in the way that these institutions create those kinds of structures around you that, that deny your individuality and your personhood. And, I once heard an Oxford yeah. professor saying um, the trouble with these young people and students who come along is that they think that they're that they're important yeah. And that and that we should notice them as individuals, but they're not. They're just they're just moving through the institution. That's exactly that view. Yeah. And I mean your your point, Linda, about that you are you are affiliating yourself not to the institution, but to your to a vision of it, a utopian ideal of it or something. And it made me think of how like nostalgia and sentiment are so important to institutions which is basically why they can't tell the truth, right? Because those are not true. Idealization is my bugbear. I can't bear it when people get into that mindset. And you yeah. know those photos yeah. you get of smiling, happy vicars and their families yes. and, and, and those awful corporate pictures of everyone smiling, multiracial smiling people. It's just sick making and really dangerous. The photo op, it, this, the thing is just there for the photo. It's horrible and it, it conceals Daniel, yeah. all the reality. It's, it's yeah. a, it's a it's a deceitful business so what's the that is true so what is the what is the solution have really miserable looking people saying we hate we hate working here <laughs> that might be i'm not sure that'd be more enticing when you join when if you joined an anglican <laughs> now there's people on this call who know which college i'm talking about you join an anglican training college and instead of some flashy manual they show you all the 
all the relationships that have been put under extreme pressure because of the training there or something like that. <laughs> here's, here's page after page of people whose lives have been made miserable by being affiliated by this institution. Do you think that's I, what we should be doing? I, I, well, I do, I do love people who, who just speak the blunt truth in an inappropriate way because yeah. it's so courageous and it's so refreshing when people do it. And a little bit more of that would go a long way and should be much more rewarded and it's not. People just get uncomfortable and shuffle around. And who punishes? Often. Who 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 does the punishing when the truth teller is blunt and they get punished? Who's who's actually punishing them? I think it's more than the institution. I think it's society, because of course we collude yeah. with institutions like MAD. Yeah. And we don't like troublemakers. Um, and even that nomenclature. Yeah. You know, yeah. that it has to be called whistleblowing, yes. not giving an institution feedback or making mm. a complaint or, you know, telling the truth or you know, yeah. something. But I mean, I think there is definitely some physical mm. things that need to be done. So if you go into a church, a college, a boarding school, any of these places, corridors of portraits, because it's all about the people who used to run this show. And that is the Terry Pratchett point about organising the organisation and not organising the enterprise. Where are the pictures of happy, smiling faces of people who are being currently served by that institution yeah. or have recently triumphed because of that institution? It's, it's all about the inputs and not the outputs. So I, th I think there are some very physical things that would help just change the mindset um, and change you know, that kind of addiction to kind of leather panelled offices and shows. But would you go so far, Eve, as to think that we should memorialise bad behaviour? I mean, obviously, the Holocaust is a, hmm. is, is a prime example of where, where German people have done that very effectively. Um, and it's done all the way through into schools, not just museums and parks and blah, blah, blah. But do you think institutions, is there any hope that institutions, you know, can the BBC have... <laughs> remember what it did with Ginny Savile. Can the Church of England remember abuse victims? Well, I think it's really hard because, I mean, again, I don't think it's about, you talk, you have this lovely conversation about the collusion between HR and PR, about suppression and messaging and airbrushing out the truth and that awful story of somebody going to church and it all being all the giddy stuff and not about the kind of paedophile that had been harboured there for years. And I, I don't think it's healthy for institutions to dwell on the two or three dreadful things that went wrong, rather than all the things in the future they're going to get right. But I think it is about being very, very clear that you're not ignoring that, airbrushing it out, denying it. We're going through a moment now with Black Lives Matter, with everything else, where we're really wrestling with the extent to which we're going to rip statues down or put things up on them or whatever we're doing. Because um, I, I think we don't know the answer to that yet. But I would think that if all Gordonston did was spend its whole time doing hair shirt about actually a very few dreadful people who did dreadful crimes, rather than all the very positive things that Gordonston has done and will do in the future, I think the institution would just melt away and not in a very healthy way. But yeah, it's about how do you use that? How do you use it to say, because that was so shaming and so dreadful, we want to renew our commitment to really important things we really do believe in and make sure we become beacons of the opposite. That's right. And, and Andre, in his response to me, says he has a really useful example of Alcoholics Anonymous in which being ruthlessly honest about the ways you've messed up is seen as, as a healing 
positive thing and not surrounded by cultures of shame and guilt inducement and punishment. So it's the context within which you are able to tell the truth and have the truth, that, that being celebrated rather than becoming a hair shirt thing. But is the thing about the best airline to fly is the one that's just crashed. I mean, I think it does mean that you are so focused on repentance and, well, ideally, if you're a good institution, um, repentance and renewal and um, trying to, to win back the trust you've lost, that it can be the best thing that's ever happened if you can actually be really truthful uh, and really, really clear um, and design out any possibility. Um, but as you say, there's a lot of barriers to get over before you can get to the space where you can do that, I think. Now I'm getting some questions coming in now from people on the um, on the call. Can I can I start to call some of these out? Are you happy if I if I put one out to you? If someone's identity is inseparable from the institution, how can they recover their own voice without having a breakdown? Once the institutionalized person has come to the end of their rope, what do they do? We need to get we need to get Andre with this psychotherapy knowledge here but I mean this is the problem with narcissism isn't it and often that's I think there is a connection there Fiona Gardner talks about institutional narcissism um, as an explanation for hmm. um, why people why why bishops in the Church of England she's talking about didn't listen to forgot about didn't deal with the abuse victims uh, and that's about the merging the unhealthy merging with the institution and 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 I'm always told that the problem with narcissism is that you can't you can't heal it because there is no person. If narcissist, if narcissism is a false self, a grandiose self that we construct, we all construct a bit around ourselves, of the wonderful me with my wonderful institutional qualifications. If that becomes all of you, there's no self behind it to fall back on, and so people can't. It can get that bad, I suppose. So that that's a pretty irredeemable case if that is really true or is there always a part of someone Andre might say I've talked to him over lunch about this you know that his job is to show people a different part of themselves or to connect with something that is still real <coughs> still real don't know I, mean, I think there's some really interesting learning here about what happens when people retire because an awful lot of people have built their entire sense of self on the fact that I'm a professor I'm a partner I'm a lecturer I'm a whatever and all of a sudden when they retire, they go to a dinner party and someone says, what do you do? And they kind of go, um, um, um. And then they say, oh, I've just become a trustee of, a, you know, I'm the PCC chairman or whatever. <laughs> so I think there is a, a really interesting thing about transitions and identity. And, and is there something that retired people learn to do really well that we could actually design in further back in institutions that would help people decouple in that way because I think it is very hard and as you say the more identified you get with the institution the more you've got to lose so the more you collude with the protection of the institution over everything else. We have a question coming in that it's raising the the, the idea of sin and redemption you know if we're, if we're talking about broken institutions or institutions that have hurt people is this where we could start to talk about sin and redemption can can institutions sin and can they be, be redeemed we can but i don't think it helps it doesn't help me because these are just very very broad brush terms um i think i think i hope i'm trying to analyze sin, what sin looks like and what the redemption looks like but i'm not sure not sure the words. I think, I think they're helpful, but I think they've been abused because what happened in the Catholic Church in particular and in some of the cases in the Church of England 
is there was a sense that because the perpetrator had confessed uh, in private to private individuals, um, then that person should be allowed to be forgiven and should be kept within the system because they had repented. Um, and so I think the really tricky thing about being a kind of legal trustee in an institution that is also religious is you, you have to kind of sit lightly to that theology if it's going to make you collude. So there was quite a lot of keeping people in the system for theological reasons that just meant they had free access to children. Mm -hmm. um, and Absolutely. And, and that's why I'm reacting against the, the sin, because it was used, it's, it's always used in a very generalised way. Oh, but we're all sinners. We're all broken. We all need healing. Well, yes, but <laughs> this guy over here is doing something really bad, or this girl. And we need to make distinctions here. And when you just brush over it, it's been used as a way of saying, oh, we must be forgiving because actually you're a sinner too. In a really passive aggressive way. I've seen it used so many times. But I do think the disciplines that religions have of how do you bring yourself and institutions back round when you have fallen short is really important. So but they don't in practice, Eve. They don't. Well, no, I think No, but I think this was one of the really things that interesting these I learned at Gordonston is that I, I've been working with Anthony Bash, who's written this lovely book on remorse, and he talks a lot about the kind of disciplines of being clear about where you've erred and strayed, being genuinely sorry, and talking very specifically about how you were going to make reparation, however that looks. And there are there are steps and processes that are familiar to people in a religious tradition about how do you turn around how did you actually do that repentance and and get on back on track and I think you know wh where it, ha it has been abused theologically as I said but I think that you can use those technologies if you like those theological disciplines to help you figure out how you would take an organization forward so that was exactly what I did with Gordonston which was to try and honor all those steps so that we would believably be trying to improve um, because ap apologies are cheap. Um, you've actually got to show that you have mended your ways. And I think there are some really good mm. theological resources around that that we can draw on. I mean, speaking of theological terms that have become weaponized, there's a good good comment questions come in about the, about the use of hope, the word hope. So, you know, the questioner says, what do you think about the place of hope? Some would argue that it is the Christian response to rotten institutions to stay and help to do better, right? But this questioner says, I wonder whether you should shake the dust off your feet. That might be more appropriate to actually get out of the thing. But the problem is, is that vulnerable people who are in a hostile or a rotten institution are often told you should stay and, and hope for the best, or you, you should stay and be a part of the solution, right? Mm. So hope is being used as some kind of weapon. And again, specifically perhaps in a Christian environment. Mm. I think I think I've stayed too long in institutions sometimes when I should have moved on. You know, moving on is a it's a vote, isn't it? It makes a difference. So it's it's it helps the institution as well sometimes. So I do think leaving is 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 an option. And just to go back to young people, Generation Z that I've been really interested in studying recently, they just don't believe going back to EU's contract with institutions, they do not believe they think you're we're absolutely nuts, people like Eve and I to have made, you know, given part, given our lives to institutions, overwork for institutions. They just think that's crazy because all that matters are human relationships. That's all that matters. 
and having a good work-life balance. And they're going to work nine to five and they're not going to be suckered into giving their lives to these institutions. And I think this is, this is bringing on, a, you know, it's going to be a much bigger crisis for institutions than they yet realise. I think hope is a tricky thing because I think it's a bit like the arguments about investment. You know, should you stay in oil in order to make the blighters change their ways or do you get the hell away from fossil fuels because it will infect you? And I think there's a bit like that institutions. If you are brave enough to go in with a, a kind of bent to try and improve them uh, and do truth telling and kind of behave well it's really exhausting and there's a lot of organ rejection um, and so you know you can be as hopeful as you like but it, it it's a bit like the suffragettes you know there need to be oodles of women standing behind those ones and falling in front of horses and chaining themselves to railings and you know there's a sort of really resilience problem about people fighting institutions to try and sort of keep them on track so a lot of people just give up and go native or disappear off or you know whatever and um you certainly see that i mean linda's talked a lot about this around the survivor community within the church in particular you know the first lot will fight and then they get so discouraged they give up um and sadly there are legions of survivors behind them who could then go into battle um but but i think it is a really tricky thing is when when does hope become foolishness mm-hmm. um but actually you do need to keep hoping <laughs> that that whatever you do will have at least pushed it a bit um and and stood up for something given someone hope from your example that could then pick up the baton so i, I do think hope is really important i mean there is a there is a question that that's coming in that i think is relevant here about about letting something die or even killing it right like uh is it giving up hope when you've realized uh, that actually just needs to die. Uh, there's this person as I'm thinking about letting institutions die or indeed smiting them. What kind of soil do we need to till in order to? Oh, grow but theologically, that's very structure? hopeful, isn't it? Dave? Right. I was going to say, like, if you're going to kill something, it doesn't mean you've lost hope. You can be as critical as you like institutions, but the truth is, the most important things we do as a society are done by institutions. You know, legal things. What happens when we die? making really big decisions about whether to send weapons to Ukraine. All these things are done by people acting in institutional roles. And so I can't see that whatever stable, stable societies are not going to do without institutions. Where institutions disappear, you don't get, you don't really get, you get chaos. And so given that there are only a number of sort of set social role purposes that societies will have, like education and health and politics and power and you know so on um you're always going to need institutions and so why keep why kill I mean, it's better to make them better isn't it there, well, is, no, there can... is a really interesting comment in the chat about agency and i think your point at the beginning linda about you, you know these aren't monoliths they are systems and processes that have been created by people and there may be you know habits around them but they're, they're very changeable and i think all that sort of systems thinking and all that lovely modern idea that um, if, if we can just see that everything is an interaction, we can just change it. Um, so there is something about how would we give people agency back within systems so that in institutions, we stop doing that Mary Midgley thing of kind of anthropomorphizing them and putting them at arm's length in order to kind of distance ourselves and blame it all on the institution, the systems and the processes and not us. If we can hold fast to the fact that we still have free will 
um, there is something really important about how we could all keep agency. But I think that is a, a, a piece of work that needs to be done by society because all the messaging is about othering the institution. So it's a thing and it's a thing that is too powerful for us to fight. And it's a thing in which we lose our agency. Yes. And I like Re Rena says, but it is chaos now. <laughs> Surely it can't be any more chaotic. Um, well, I think a lot of young people are not going to vote. They're not going to become politicians. They are not going to become academics. They are not going to become doctors. They are not going to become, I could go on, lawyers, policemen. What happens then? I'm not sure that is going to create a paradise. I'd like to think so. Part of my anarchist part, part of me is quite attracted to that. But then I think you're just going to have to regroup as a police force. You have to regroup as an educational institution. And you're going to have to learn the same lessons over again. And you've lost, you've lost a lot of the memory. So That's at what point, I mean, so there's two questions coming in that I think are relevant here, or I think are related. So one thing is, uh, at what point do institutions just become too big to be moral? But then there's another question about how do you return back? Is it possible to recover the original purpose or the original origin story of an institution? Um, if they're so invested in maintaining the cover story or maintaining the the nostalgic uh, image of themselves, is it even possible to return back or how would we do that? If you don't want to destroy it, how do you go back to the, to the beginning then? I, I, don't think there is an, I don't think there is an original story for anything. I think institutions have lots and lots and lots of stories and that's a, their beauty. So you can, and you're always going to make a new story but you'll pick from bits of the old stories. So I think it's about renewing the story, not going back to an original one, which sounds a bit fundamentalist, that there was an original story and we can just blow off the dust and right. it'll come back. Um, do I think institutions can get too big? I think they can get too... Um, too big to fail? Yes, in the sense that I think they can. You can imagine a church ending up where it's just run by priests and bishops for the benefit of priests and bishops, and nobody goes to church. Oh, anymore. I can't imagine that at all, Linda. That's I can imagine that, and then it wouldn't. Then it would fail. But uh, a lot of these institutions have failed, and they're still going, though. I mean, uh, it's yes, and they shouldn't. No, I totally agree with yeah. you. You know, in universities, I wouldn't exempt them as well. It's something similar. You know, they they can just be about maintaining the position of those who run them because an institution can fail and still just lumber forward into into the future for I a mean, while but yeah. it's not going to lumber for very long if it's not actually i can think of a few <laughs> well a while a while especially if they've got lots and lots of money and prestige well exactly right so so i mean what do you do with these ones if you don't want to you don't want to you don't seem to want to kill them uh, but they're zombies. What if they're dead already? This is a how can you tell when an institution is actually dead already? If it's just it, got a lot of money and legacy money and it's keep it can keep kind of pretending it, like it's it still loses has it, it loses its legitimacy. Yeah. And then people just don't regard it as an institution anymore. It's just a self-serving organization. We've got some, you know, evidence of this in that, you know, they, they create whole new government departments or whole new student loans companies that become institutions within two or three years because there are groupies like you and me, Linda, who are addicted to institutions. And, you know, if we work to the treasury, we might as well go and work in something similar. And we, we've kind of got a lot of the habits of institution already that we just then start pouring into this new proto-institution and creating another one. So, and I think there's some really interesting crossovers and lessons learned from what happens to companies when they become institutionalized, but also what happens to institutions when they 
either successfully adopt kind of managerialistic practices as you've described them in in, in your thing, Linda, or, or don't. Um, and I think there's some really interesting things around the truth telling and the discipline, because I think it's pretty obvious if you've been making Encyclopedias Britannica for years and suddenly, you know, that's not selling, you know, you either go out of business or you pivot. And there's lots of examples of that in industry. As you say, in institutions, they're never going to run out of people to bury or people to write wills for or people to be political about or something. Mm. So there is something about the activity will still go on. Um, And as you say, even if that institutional version of it stops. So if the Church of England blinked out of existence, there would be another institution along fairly quickly called the New Christian zone of christ or something and it would start behaving like the church of england really sharpish it would buy all its cathedrals up in the drop of a hat and move into the palaces and you blink and you'll miss it where do you think the role of art comes in so we we have a lot of experiences of art and artists and institutions patronizing art in order to glorify themselves you know at where at what point could art be used to make an institution accountable or to shine a light onto some practices i think this is linda's point about jesters I think I think the arts need to take the piss out of institutions big time um, because that was the great thing about jesters. They, they were the only people that had permission to truth tell. Right. And I think the problem is that institutions get so po-faced. You know, there aren't even jokes. It's very miserable being an institutionist in Otlander, which is why we're fun, because we refuse to give in and we swear a lot. Um, but there is something about how could we institutionalise that through art and how could we poke fun at institutions more? So it'd be formally. good for an institution to... To, to, to be the patron of its own jester. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the arts in general, the arts and humanities in general, I think are incredibly important. I'm really sad about the way they have to defend themselves all the time now, but just think about history. Just think about the words of those people who spend their lives trying to tell us the truth, you know, the story a bit more truthfully and how important it is. It's so essential to reforming things that there are still people who do that kind of work. But we live in an age which is quite, there's a, there's a, a comment question coming in about liberalism. That, so the idea of like, I guess we're talking not, not kind of uh, right and left liberalism, but so much uh, as the, the modern tendency to write your own story, right? To be liberated from the overarching big stories, right? So this is tendency of self-authorship or, and does that kill institutions? Or I mean, is is that why is the alternative uh, a kind of a, a free-for-all of everyone self-authoring or do we all have to join these big stories like is there some middle ground between these two i think it's always it's really dangerous when one story becomes dominant and people think there is no alternative and an increasing commercialization of everything means there are just fewer options for people these days and um, no. individual stories aren't really a fight back against that. Um, no. I mean, they're an attempt to fight back. So we but author our own story and, and you know, people, I, I have great respect for people who are much more flexible in thinking about their gender and race and whatever, and you know, making a unique identity and defending it. But we also need some common stories yeah. and, and, and a variety of them. And that's a real sadness about the decline of monasteries and churches and whatever that allowed people who didn't want to go down the commercial story to have you know legitimate space in society yeah, i'm reminded of william kavanagh who's a a, a social theologian mm. i admire a lot and he thinks one of the main things to do is to we, we live in liberalism has given us a simplified space there's not there's only one story to join in on really and or one or two stories and 
he thinks that what we should do is make these spaces more complex. We should offer lots more stories that pe people could be a part of and that actually the tension between these different institutions is actually really good for us. It's good to have competing stories claiming our- Yes, yeah, our I mean, it, there, it, right? it's, I think institutions today are just, it's a horrible the way in which they do this contradictory thinking. So on the one hand, they're always having visions. They're always doing strategies. They're constantly having new visions and strategy. And then you try and make the slightest change and they say, oh, we can't do that. Look at the spreadsheets, look at the numbers. It yes, won't work. Right. So yeah. there's absolutely no alternative. There's no flexibility. So all these big visions are just complete nonsense. Now that sense that we just can't do that. No one else is doing that. Our competitors aren't doing that. There's so little creativity. I think that's where the arts comes in. But I think also, if you read Douglas North and all those people about what institutions really are, they're sort of sets of rules and practices, as you say, in your, your piece, Linda. So I suspect we'll never be rid of them, because I think wherever you have people who need to organise, there will be sets of rules and practices about birth, marriage, death, education, ruling, all those things. And it is a particular feature of history. So possibly you could do a comparison between the younger countries um, in terms of the, the modern expression of them uh, with younger institutions versus you know, places like Britain where the institutions are so desperately old, um, they have just become sort of self-perpetuating dinosaurs. So I think there's an interesting thing about kind of longevity and timescales as well as the kind of definition of institution per se. If institutions can't now, this is a good question to come in, uh, and I, I might ask Roger to get on the mic here. If institutions can't themselves love, how can we make them places where love is genuinely experienced? And uh, I, there's a backstory to this. Roger says, "Are you? Do you want to? Do you want to share the backstory, Roger, to this to this question? I I, I really want to focus on this love. How do we make a place where love can be experienced? I'm interested in that. Okay, I'll just do this very quickly. Um, I was um, someone who was endeavouring to uh, help a, 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 a new church institution uh, become less toxic and less damaging to its members, um, in the context of which I found myself exiled from said institution. Um, and from that, I went to university to do a PhD, and without being... Um, embarrassing to Linda, one of the reasons why I'm sitting here right now, is that um, she was a key player in the institution to which I went. Um, and she, she was one of the reasons why for a season, certainly for me, being part of that institution was to experience love and well-being. And that's why it might well be um, in a very good position to answer this question, which is namely, um, certainly from her perspective, how do you, how did she manage during that season to bring love and well-being into the institution of which she was a part, particularly as head of department, for example? I just wondered whether self-consciously you were doing anything because you were a bloody good success at it. <laughs> Linda, I'm going to let this be the last word of the evening. This, this is, you've been set up. You've been set up to finish really well, Linda, and then you need to catch your train. How were you so bloody good at creating a place where Roger felt loved? Roger, that is such a lovely thing to say. Thank you. Um, um, and I've just gone to another one to be head of department, so I'm trying to remember. Um, <laughs> I think 
people in institutions. I mean, I genuinely like people, and I think people in institutions are usually doing a really good job under really difficult circumstances. And and they're tired, and they're very responsible people, and they're idealistic people. They still believe really deep down in the core purpose of that institution. You know, they really believe in education, for example, um, or truth in a university. And you have to connect with that. It is what somebody said, you know, is in that sense the origin story, Andre said. You have to connect, help people connect back to why we're all there in it together. And and just just listen to people and use some common sense, I think. <laughs> but genuinely like them, like enjoy their company and affirm them in what they're doing. Eve's very good at, at sorting out institutions. Eve can also comment on this. I, I don't really want to steal any of your thunder because that was such a, a lovely way to end. But, but I think I would say that I, I, I do think there is something very powerful about origin stories in a good way, um, because it is people are drawn to institutions because of what they love. They like truth, justice, politics, education, health, whatever it might be. And, and those are sort of believey things. They're not doey things. Um, and as I said before, I think institutions trade off the fact that you have an emotional attachment to them. So I think there's a real discipline about not abusing that, but really embracing it and taking it really seriously and allowing people to love healthily in those environments um, by being honest about it, because then they don't go off and love the wrong thing in the wrong corner in a really unhealthy way. So I'm, I'm a big lover of um, getting back to core purpose and helping everyone that's and, right. and remember why it's fun. Rina yes. says, can't we play more? Even I like playing. And we still have a bit of fun in the church and the institution. We've we just got more go sherry down. than I do tonight. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, have some fun and like each other more. These, these are very simple and extremely profound things to say when it comes to rotten institutions. Linda and Eve, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate uh, your wisdom on this. And also I, I really do recommend Linda's book, The uh, Rotten Institutions, which or the journal article that has just come out with the Yoho journals. Thank you to everyone who has sent in all your questions. I'm sorry that we didn't get to all of them, but we were trying to incorporate them into our discussion. I hope you noticed as we, as we talked. And uh, thank you to Alicia Willis for being the editor, the secret editor uh, there's some other editorial team, but she's put her face forward as the main editor of the Yoho Journal. So we thank you to Alicia and the Yoho Journals. Thank you to Eve Poole for joining us. And thank you to Linda Woodhead for sharing her time with us. Right. Go well, Linda. You need to Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for brilliant sharing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.